Our reading for today is from Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Ashley. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. Uh, one quick announcement um, before we get into our text. We are uh, finally starting up another midweek Bible study class uh, at the end of this month. Uh, it's getting started before we do our monthly uh, uh, communication, so I wanted to mention it. Um, it's going to run five weeks from May uh, 31st through June 28th, and it's going to be the gospel and finance. And essentially what we're going to have is uh, James Dufresne, Patrick Durkin, and, and Dave Dunmire and myself are going to be teaching about what the, what the gospel has to say about, what the Bible has to say about, how we handle our money and wealth and all of that stuff. Um, the primary uh, teaching will be done through video, but then there's also going to be time to uh, interact with each other and with the leaders of the study uh, afterward, it's uh, right here on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 7.45. On the last night, on June 28th, though, we're actually going to have a little panel discussion with uh, a couple of people who really understand these principles as well as anybody I've ever known. We're going to have our, uh, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, is going to come in, and he's going to be on the panel. And then Steve Wheeler, one of our uh, elders, is also going to be in, and, and he's going to be on the panel. And I get to mediate it, so I'm going to have a lot of fun with that. But uh, uh, I would just encourage you to consider coming to this class. Again, it's just five weeks, so it's not a big, uh, not a big commitment. And also, if you have to miss a week for work or whatever, I know a lot of people have to do that. Don't worry about it. Come when you can. So uh, you can find that on the website and RSVP. Uh, also, uh, want to mention that I've been out of the pulpit the last uh, two weeks for my annual study break, which was a really sweet time. But I, I got to tell you, I, I just I'm so thankful for uh, Redemption Church and Redemption Church Arcadia in particular. And, and especially Cody, who just, I, I know that when I'm gone, people have to step up. And you saw Cody step up and preach two magnificent messages, and you saw Camille come in and lead us in, in our worship, and I mean, I'm not needed, so. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's just, it's really good. And I'll tell you, the only thing I told Cody that he really needs, to, it just Someday in a message, he's going to quote the Godfather. I know he's, I know he's got it in him. Someday he's going to do that. So uh, we are continuing in the book of Acts today. We're going to do almost all of chapter 12. We're just not doing the last verse. So turn to Acts chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. It's an amazing chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters um, in the Bible. I was glad that when I looked at the preaching calendar, it was on a day that I was going to preach, which usually means in God's sense of humor that this is going to be a lousy message. So um, many people see two separate narratives in chapter 12 of Acts. Uh, there are not two separate narratives. This is a full unit. This is a great example of the rhetorical device of inclusio. Um, Luke starts by telling a little story about Herod primarily, he ends by telling a little story about Herod, 
And in the middle, we have this magnificent story of Peter uh, being in prison and his miraculous escape from prison. And the middle of the story helps us to understand the two ends. It's called inclusio. Uh, Luke at, at, um, at our gateway uh, congregation calls it a Lucan sandwich. That's if you want to think of it that way. There's, there's a beginning and an end, and there's all this in the middle, and all of it helps to uh, interpret each other. And I would say this, this chapter helps us to understand the impetacy, the impetacy of worldly power and politics, politics as we know them, in the face of the gospel. And there's just tremendous application for us today in this, in this passage. And here's the big idea. Very simple. God wins, always and forever. God wins. And I know some of you are like, mm, I'm not sure I like that kind of language. We'll talk about it at the end, and, and we'll unpack it a little bit more. But we're going to work our way through the passage and then get to two takeaways at the end. So the first paragraph is what Ashley read, the first five verses. I want to read it again, and I call this the setup. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, his constituency, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, Roman soldiers, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people to execute him. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Luke starts with about that time. That's a reference back to the end of chapter 11. So this is running concurrent with the events of of Paul and Barnabas now being in Antioch and, and, and helping that church and trying to raise funds for the famine-stricken church in Jerusalem so that they could help them out. And if you've been here during this Acts series, you know that I absolutely love Luke's writing style because it's filled with contrast and juxtaposition and comparison and irony. But here... I am reminded of how also I love Luke's realistic approach to what's going on historically in the church in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. He does talk at length, as we've seen, about the miracles and the victories and the advances of the church, but he's also a realist. The world is full of sinful and corrupt people. And the world itself is fallen because of sin. And so, he also tells us about the setbacks and the disappointments and the martyrs of the church. He doesn't hold any of this back. He doesn't just tell us the good news and coat us with sugar and, and tell us that everything's just going to be okay. There are genuine trials here. He tells us that James, one of the Jameses in the New Testament, the brother of John, is murdered by Herod. And I think this is a good example of, again, the book of Acts shows us how the church goes out into the world to proclaim the gospel and love our neighbors and serve our community. And as we do that, we engage the world. But it's an engagement that is peppered and seasoned with both God's favor and on the other side with animosity 
from people who don't want to hear this message and don't want anything to do with it. The church goes out with God's favor and amazing things happen, but there is going to be pushback and it's going to be hard and it's going to be challenging. One of the most challenging things I have as a pastor is to help people understand that just because something is hard, it doesn't mean that you aren't in God's will. I hear this all the time. I prayed, I sought God's will, and I decided to do this, and now it's hard. I must have missed God's will. No, he's teaching you something. And that's just the way the world is. It's hard. And there's going to be challenges. So who's this guy, Herod? So there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. Have you noticed that as well? So let's talk a little bit about who he is. One of the first questions that people ask about the Herod family, all of these guys that are governors or kings or um, tetrarchs in the Bible, are they Jewish? And, and it's interesting. A lot of people think that they are Jewish ethnically, but they're really not. Um, Herod the Great, who we are introduced to in the beginning of the Gospels, especially at the beginning of Matthew, uh, Herod the Great was the king of this area during Jesus' time of birth, and, and, and it was just, his reign ended just after Jesus' um, birth. Um, but we are told that Herod the Great um, uh, converted to Judaism, but he's actually Edomian in his ethnic origins. He's, he's, from, uh, he's an Edomite, he's from Edom. So he's, he's not Jewish ethnically, but he had converted to Judaism, but understand the Herods who their family who had converted to Judaism were working for the Roman government. And so there's some tension there and, and you have to be a politician in order to be able to kind of manage this tension. So the Herod here is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that was the beginning of the Gospels. He was responsible for what we might know of as the slaughter of the innocents. He heard that this king had been born, Jesus, and so he orders that all the male babies under a year old be killed in all of the land. And, and Mary and Joseph had to take Jesus to Egypt to be able to uh, avoid that. So this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa, here in chapter 12, and he's out killing people too. And so it appears as though the ruler, power, paranoia, DNA gets passed down to the grandson as well. So Herod Agrippa is a governor who is appointed by the Romans, just like his grandfather, over this vast region there that included not just Jerusalem and Judea, but included Samaria to the north. And it included uh, Galilee and Idumea and the Decapolis, among other places. This was a huge area, and the capital city was not in Jerusalem, but was actually in Caesarea, which is by the Mediterranean. It's a, it was a beautiful, still is, it was a beautiful coastal town. Here you go. For those of you that know California, think San Clemente. So he, Herod Agrippa spends most of his time in San Clemente trying to manage things from there. And his job for the Roman government specifically is to do two things. This is it. He needs to collect taxes and he makes, needs to make sure that there are no uprisings and no trouble being caused. So anytime there's a little uprising or a little disturbance, he sends out people to, to quell it. He, he, he needs to make sure there's no unrest. So collect taxes, no unrest, that's it. Otherwise, he could do whatever he wants. That's it. 
And his great God, just like his grandfather, his great God, his drug, his aphrodisiac, his, his passion was power, worldly power. That was his God. That was his idol. And when he saw that killing a Christian, James, curried favor with his constituency, he said, well, I can do more of that. And he went back for more. So like his grandfather, I would describe Herod Agrippa as just another political hack. It really doesn't take a lot of intelligence to be able to do what the Herods did. It just doesn't. It really doesn't. He is the opposite of another biblical example we have in Genesis, this guy named Joseph. Those of you who have read about Joseph, Herod is the opposite of Joseph. Joseph had power, but it was power in submission to God. And Joseph used his power uh, not to control people and to murder people, but he used it to benefit and bless all people with no bias and no personal agenda. That's what he did. He loved people because God loved him. Cody mentioned this book last week that I also read, um, The Way of the Dragon and The Way of the Lamb. These two authors, uh, uh, Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel, have determined, both of them are pastors. One uh, teaches at Talbot Seminary. He's a PhD. Both of them have determined that the way most people live their lives, they're people of the world trying to acquire and use worldly power, and they call that power, power from below. And what they're saying is that Christians and the church need to be more understanding and more faithful about what they call power from above, the power that comes from the resurrected Christ, the power that comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting about this book is certainly they talk about some marketplace situations, but they're talking about how this idea of trying to grasp power from below, worldly power, is rampant even in the church, in Jesus' church. We need to cut it out. We need to stop it. I'm talking about we, the pastors. Y'all got it figured out. It's us. They're talking to pastoral leaders. This is how... Difficult it is for us to resist this power from below, this worldly power. Joseph understood it. Herod does not. So this all happened during the festival of unleavened bread, which is close to Passover. What are the implications of that? I mean, Luke includes this detail, so there's implications. Well, the implication is that if it wasn't close to these high holy days, uh, Herod would have taken Peter in and executed him right away. They weren't going to have a trial for Peter. They already had a conviction. He was, already, he was already pronounced guilty. But you can't have an execution during the high holy days, for the Jewish high holy days. So he had, to, he had to wait a little bit. But understand, the church knows the Jewish religious ruling council in Jerusalem and the Roman government and the Roman governor will now do anything to stop this Christian thing. Even if it means that Peter accidentally dies in prison. The church is praying because they're worried that that's what's going to happen to Peter. And probably because of Acts chapter 5. If you go back to Acts chapter 5, Peter and the disciples are arrested and they're put into prison overnight. And again, miraculously, God releases them from, the, from prison and they don't go and hide. They, they just go into the temple and start preaching again. And here comes the Jewish ruling council. Hey, where are Peter and the disciples? Oh, they're in the temple preaching again. So probably because of that, 
Peter is now treated to four squads of Roman soldiers guarding him. They didn't do that before. Four squads of Roman soldiers. Okay. Now, again, if you understand history, you understand the context, you see this is a big deal. These are 16 Roman soldiers guarding one prisoner who's in a prison cell that's locked up and who has, is, is in chains. And they've got 16 Roman soldiers guarding this guy. There's no way that Peter overpowers or outmaneuvers this, this Roman squad. They're going to kill him. So this next paragraph, uh, verses uh, 6 through 11, is what I call the dipsy doodle. Now, for those of you that don't know what a dipsy doodle is, it's an athletic term that describes how somebody is able to outmaneuver the defensive players, okay? So uh, it's, it's like in football, a guy's surrounded by three guys that want to tackle him, and somehow he spins away and jukes his way out, and he runs and scores a touchdown. Or in basketball, you got a, you got a 360 followed by a 360, which would be a 720 for you math majors, and then they dunk the ball, and they leave everybody. In ping pong, all right, the analogy's done. All right, so... So here you go. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. He's not getting out. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. I love this. And a light shone in the cell, and the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, uh, <clears throat> they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. That's interesting. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, when he woke up, he was, thought he was having a dream. He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So imagine you're Peter. You know you're going to be executed. He knows that this incarceration is not like the ones in chapter 3 and chapter 5 where he gets a hearing and he gets to speak and eventually he's released. They already had a verdict in this case and he was guilty. So the execution is coming and you're in chains and you're in a locked cell and you're being guarded by 16 of the government's best soldiers. Yet you're sound asleep. You're sound asleep. I wouldn't be. He's so sound asleep that look at what it says. The angel had to strike him to wake up. Can, can you imagine what Luke didn't put in there? I'm just imagining, okay? The angel comes in. Light shines in. Already Jackie would be awake because she hates light, okay? So the light shines in and the angel's going, Hey, Peter! Okay? Peter. <laughs> Peter. Hey, Peter! Boom! What? That's the scene. He's going to be executed. Calmness of heart. That's the submission to this power from above. Now, I know that's hard. I get it. I'm an anxious dude. I know we all worry about things. I know that life is unpleasant and unfair, and we're all control freaks. Can I get an amen on that? 
We all desire things to turn out exactly the way we would have them turn out when they're supposed to turn out that way. But look at Peter. He was probably the single most anxious person of all the disciples in the Gospels, and he's getting his eight hours. Also consider, God could have done this any time, but he waits until the 11th hour. Listen, faith isn't faith unless it's tested. You know what you and I want? We want an early and a guaranteed resolution to all of our problems and issues. That's not faith. That's control. We want to be in control. That's not faith. God has given us faith. He saved us by grace through faith. And so we need to trust that God is going to work. He protects and he provides. So here comes the angel. Chains are gone. He says, get dressed. Oh, don't forget your sandals, Peter. Peter slips out with the angel, but he thinks he's dreaming. He gets out to the street. The angel leaves. Peter suddenly realizes that God is working yet again in his life. And I want you to understand, this is a disciple of God who has seen God work in miraculous ways already, and he didn't realize that God was working in that moment. See, that gives me great encouragement. For, for you and I, we often don't realize that God is, in fact, working in the moment. But then we look back and we understand, right? Then we look back. And looking back and seeing that God was in control of this situation the whole time is what strengthens our faith for the next time that we're in the middle of something. And Luke records Peter saying something that indicates that he's kind of pleased that the tables were turned. My paraphrase goes like this. The Jews wanted and expected an execution, but they got an escape. Tee-hee. The Greek, is, the Greek actually says nanny-nanny-foo-foo. -foo. Well, nanny-nanny-foss-foss. That's the real Greek, so. A little snarky. Not me, Peter. So, meanwhile, the church was earnestly praying. So, verses 12 through 17, I call this the awkward answered prayer. Now, when the day came, I'm sorry, 12. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And we're told earlier, they were praying for Peter. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway... A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer because Carlton the doorman was not available. <laughs> Some of you get that. Others of you are like, what in the world was that? Okay, there was a sitcom in the 70s called Rhoda. Anybody? It was a spinoff of the... Did you know that show was on for five years and it won two Golden Globes? Anyway, she lived in a building in Manhattan and her, her doorman was named Carlton. I'm just looking to be able to apply the gospel to every part of our life here, all right? Yeah, thank you. Anyway, yeah. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran, <laughs> left him there and ran back inside and reported that Peter was standing in the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell those things to James and to the brothers, and he departed and went to another place. 
So they said it's his angel. That's another way of saying it's his spirit because he's been killed. They believed that he had been executed already, either in prison accidentally or they'd already taken him out and killed him. That's what they're saying there. But I want you to think about this situation now. She got the, the church is at John Mark's house, Mary's house, and they're all praying, and they're praying for Peter, and they're praying like, uh, Lord God, we know that you're sovereign over all things. You know everything. You're all powerful. You created this universe, and we would really like you to protect and, and maybe release Peter and, and make sure that he, he stays alive. That's our prayer to you, God. Who is it? It's Peter. No, it's not. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Doesn't that strike you as just like us? Okay? So Peter gets in there and he says, listen, I'm kind of in a hurry. I'm on the lamb. I'm paraphrasing here. But he says, let's not draw a lot of attention to us. And, and, and here's what happened. And he testifies to God's work in his life. And, and, and he encourages them with that testimony for, so that we can be more faithful. And then he says, let the elders of the church know because I need to go. And he left. And we're not sure where he went at this moment. We don't know if he left from here and went immediately to Rome. We do know that eventually he did end up in Rome. And 30 years later, as Cody mentioned last week, uh, Peter was executed in Rome 30 years, out, just outside of Rome, 30 years later. And then we get to verses 18 and 19. I call this the downside to Peter's escape. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance. Don't you love the way Luke writes? There was no little disturbance. There was a big stinking disturbance when they found that Peter wasn't there, all right, among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, the guards, and ordered that they should be put to death. This was normal, standard operating procedure. If you're a Roman soldier guarding a prisoner and the prisoner escapes, you take the prisoner's place and are executed. That's normal. That's how it works. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's normal. Then he went down to Judea by Caesarea and spent time there. The capital um, from Judea down to Caesarea, the capital city, uh, Caesarea. It's tragic, isn't it? These 16 guys lost their life. But I want you to think about this. They lost their life as the result of an egotistical, power-hungry, political hack. This is not God's fault. This was Herod's sin. Sin is destructive, even to people that you don't commit it against. Anyway, Herod leaves, goes to Caesarea, and this is what happens. I call this the, the circle completed. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's the area around um, Caesarea. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, uh, don't you love that name? How many of you want to name your kid Blastus? That'd be awesome. Especially a girl. Okay, so the king's chamberlain. A chamberlain is somebody who watches over the, the chamber where the beds are, the bedroom. But a chamberlain is always very, very close to the king that he's, that he's serving. He's kind of like a confidant and a counselor as well. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Herod struck Herod down 
because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This incident is described in other historical records outside of the Bible. The great ancient historian Josephus, who was alive at this time, he records this incident. And he describes Herod's royal robes as made of silver threads that sparkled in the sun as he spoke. And then he describes that Herod died of a stomach ailment that brought him great pain. I would imagine that worms eating you from the inside out might be painful. But we understand that what appeared to be some sort of a natural death was caused by God. Why? Why do we know this? Because he took God's glory. Herod took God's glory. Don't appropriate glory that is God's to yourself. It's a pro- Remember Ananias and Sapphira? How many of you know the story of the Old Testament story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. If you have it, read the first six chapters of Daniel. It's just magnificent. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He's the guy that caused the, the, the great Jewish exile in uh, the, the late 7th and early 6th century B.C. He's the one who brought all the Jews back to Babylon. Daniel's the story of some of those young men who were brought back. But Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Nebuchadnezzar is a main player in the first four chapters of Daniel. But in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's thought that Nebuchadnezzar actually writes chapter 4 of the book of Daniel because it starts with him saying, this is my testimony about what God has done in my life. And he, then he tells this story. He said, I was standing on my palace overlooking the greatest city in the world at that time, Babylon, the eighth wonder of the world. Okay, He's overlooking it. And he starts to proclaim, he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my hands, that I have put together by my great intelligence? As Tom Schrader says, he's up there singing the great hymn, How Great I Art. (laughs) And he's proclaiming his greatness. And the scripture says, Nebuchadnezzar says, the words were still on my tongue. And God came down and said, all right, you want to see how great you are? And he made Nebuchadnezzar think that he was a cow for seven years. And he spent seven years walking around outside in the palace grounds, eating grass and drinking water from puddles. Somebody said it was a moving experience for him, but he literally thought he was a cow. One, one uh, psychiatrist writes that this is actually a rare condition known as boanthropy. God struck him with boanthropy to humble him and let him know, you're not in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar, by his own testimony, says, at the end of the seven years, I f- it took seven years. How filled with pride was this guy? Seven years. At the end of seven years, he looked up to heaven, and he said, you are God, and God restored him. And the end of the the chapter is his testimony that Yahweh is God. It's a magnificent story. I think it's safe to say that one of the worst things we can do is take glory that is God's and appropriate it to us. And I love how this ends. I'll reread it, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, Luke, with his love of contrast, juxtaposition, irony, comparison, apposition, paradox, whatever you want to call it. Did I 
include all of those you English majors. In spite of the opposition, God's mission prevails. Here's two takeaways for you. I want you to think about, pray about. Number one, verse 15. It's Peter at the door. You are out of your mind. Now, it's fun to think about them praying this way and all that. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that to some extent that happened. But it's not just that maybe they didn't have a lot of hope that God would answer this prayer. It's not just that. It's too simplified if it's just that. Though that's probably a part of it. But it's something else. I believe it's something else. They also had great faith that the Jews were fully capable of never putting Peter on trial and that, in fact, they'd probably already killed him. They had great faith in the Jews' anger against Peter and wanting to have him dead. They had faith in that. They had greater faith in the depravity of man than in the sovereignty of God. It is not uncommon for you and I to have greater faith in the depravity of human beings than in the sovereignty of God. Don't, isn't that true? It's not uncommon that our distrust of human beings outweighs our trust in God. And I would argue this is why the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ are so important. Both so important. Jesus, who is holy and perfect, willingly took on the most depraved act in the history of human beings. And we are pretty depraved, amen? I didn't hear a very loud amen there. Some of you are living in fantasy world right now. He experienced depravity at its worst when he was nailed to the cross. Now, I want you to understand something about the cross. A crucifixion, death by crucifixion was a humiliating thing. Here you go. This is not just Jesus. Everybody kind of goes through this. He was stripped, whipped, and beaten. He was unjustly accused and condemned. People hollered at him and mocked him all the way to the place of the crucifixion where he had to carry his own cross. And then he was crucified at this place called Golgotha, which is not out of the way. It's specific, strategically, the Romans always crucified people in highly trafficked areas. And they would put your crime on top of the cross so that other people walking by would see murderer, thief, king of the Jews. Well, I'm not going to do any of those things because that's where you end up, on a cross. It was a deterrent to other people. So they would crucify him, uh, these, these criminals in front of where most people would see him. So Jesus is crucified at 24th Street in Camelback in front of True Food, Okay. And people are spitting on him, and they're vying for his clothes, and they're shaming him on the cross, and animals came and picked at him, and he loses control of all of his bodily functions. All of his fluids are released. And by the way, it's painful. You get nails in your hands and in your feet or your ankles, and then what happens on the cross is you sag down. And that's how you die. You suffocate. It puts so much pressure on your lungs that your lungs close up and you suffocate. It is an excruciating, agonizing death. And then the Romans figured out they can prolong the agony if they put a little table underneath the feet where the guy can, or woman can push up on that occasionally and get a breath and so they could prolong the torture. And that's what they did with him. It, it is literally excruciating. That's where we get the word excruciating pain. Because the Latin word for cross is crux. So when you say, I have excruciating pain, you're saying you have pain like you're being crucified. But then, but then, 
to make sure that you and I know that depravity and death could not hold or defeat him. Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection is God's exclamation point to the crucifixion. Victory over sin, depravity, and death, and it is glorious. And I want you to consider this. Our redemption by Christ on the cross and his resurrection is so complete and so righteous and so holy that it's not like you broke your arm and you go and you have your arm set and it's put in a cast and it's healed. No, 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 no. Our redemption by Christ is as if the arm was never broken. We are sinless and holy and made righteous by God through his grace and his love. That is amazing. And that is reason to celebrate. Here's the second thing. This juxtaposition of the beginning of 12, Herod killing Christians and kind of getting an enjoyment out of it, In the end of chapter 12, God executes Herod for thinking that he's the true king. Here's how I would say this. God wins. God wins. Look again at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied, even in the midst of this opposition. I don't think it's an accident that Luke includes this summary right after Herod, the one who sounds like the voice of God and the word of God, is smote by God. God wins. I'm a bumper sticker guy. I admit it. I will actually break the speed limit to be able to get up to a car to be able to see what bumper sticker they have decided to ruin their $3,000 paint job with. If you think that strongly about something that you're willing to slap a bumper sticker on your paint job, that's just interesting to me. Now, let me also tell you this. I don't, I don't care about people who have 15 or 20 bumper stickers. They're just confused. They have no idea what they believe, okay? Uh, sorry if you're one of those people. I, go out there and scrape them off and just leave one, okay? And then we'll know, all right? But it, the person just one, just one, okay? That's what I want to know. Best bumper sticker I've ever seen was back in 1995 when I was a student at Grand Canyon University. I'm walking in the parking lot, and there's a bumper sticker on somebody's car, and it says, I can tell the future. God wins. God wins. Okay, now I know that's very offensive to say that God wins. We don't have winners and losers, and it's awful that it sounds like a zero sum. But he does. I, how else would you describe it? I'm not, I'm not happy or excited. I'm just saying, how else would you choose to describe it? Well, the people who are in heaven are the bigger winners than the people in hell. They're, the, they're winners too, but it's just a little harder for them. How else would you describe it? And, and, but here's what I really want to get at. Here's how he won. Here's how God won. He won by going to the cross. He won by submitting to this goofy worldly power of crucifixion. He won by losing. He won by losing. I know, three days later, he came busting out of that grave. But that's how he won. He won by going to the cross. He's God, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's victorious, and he did it on a cross. And and really, the only other alternative is what the world teaches us, that we're God, that we're divine. One author writes that this may be the biggest challenge of our day. He calls it the deification of us, the deification of us. 
We believe that we're God, and we sometimes allow other people to be God in our life, but never God. Never God. It's Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, saying, human beings are funny. They'll allow God to be anywhere he wants to be except on his throne. Here's the thing. People often do sound godly or like God, but be careful. They're not God. There's a scene in the old 1977 movie, one of my top five favorite movies of all time, Annie Hall. Okay, I know, Woody Allen. Okay, the guy's brilliant, a little depraved, but brilliant, okay? By the way, this picture won Best Picture in 1977, and it beat out Star Wars. (laughs) Anyway, Annie Hall, he's on a date with his girlfriend at Madison Square Garden to see the Maharishi. And the, his, his, his girlfriend is a journalist for the New York Times, and she's there to cover the Maharishi. And she's going on and on and on about the Maharishi. And she finally says, he's God. He's truly God. The man is God. We are in the presence of God. And just then, the Maharishi walks out of the bathroom, and, and Woody Allen says, I didn't know God needed to go to the bathroom. We elevate people and ourselves to deity. That was Herod. That was Herod, and he was rudely reminded of his his mortality. We have so much angst right now about our politicians and our political situation. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, all of we're just, we're just, we're freaked out about this. Hey, here you go. Write this down, you note takers. God's got this. He's got it. He's got it. Now, I know some of you are like, well, Let's get the worm thing going for Donald or Hillary. I mean, you know, he may not do that. He, he may not do that, but he's in control. He's got this figured out. Herod was rudely reminded of his mortality. The surest sign that someone who sounds good is actually a heretic is if it's really human-centered, and that was Herod. It's Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a human being, but in the end, it leads to destruction. That's gold. We've, you, you know what, we've got to quit settling for the knockoff and just lean into the real thing. That's my close. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you that re, you recorded this amazing account of Peter and Herod. And I just pray that we'd be encouraged by it about who you are. That it would, it would encourage our faith, that it would help us to love you more and love our neighbors more. And God, that we would be your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.